So far in this series we've been looking at the growth and development of English. But it's as well to remind ourselves that English is a relative newcomer on these islands and that there are places where other older languages are still thriving, sometimes against considerable odds. One such language is Gaelic and one such place to hear it is here on South Uist in the Outer Hebrides. This is where our story began, with the choir of St. Peter's Church singing in the language which we might all now be speaking, had history taken any of several very slight turns. English, as we have seen, was shaped by the conquests of various peoples, Angles, Saxons and Jutes, Vikings, directly from Scandinavia and indirectly from Ireland, and finally Norman French. And then it began a series of conquests of its own, extending outwards into the wider world and pushing native languages like Gaelic and Welsh into the furthest corners of the British Isles. Against such an onslaught, it is a small miracle that a tongue like Gaelic has survived as well as it has. Unlike Welsh, Gaelic has no official status, and its future is by no means assured. I asked Neil Macmillan, a crofter on South Uist, how his native tongue is doing. Well, fortunately, it's, uh, it's still holding its strength. But um, I can see a decline just the same. There's so much pressure from uh, uh, incomers who don't have the language and uh, they don't uh, bother to learn the language and to be... Uh, more or less uh, integrated into the, the island society. Now, just from day to day in your normal life, what proportion of, of the time are you using Gaelic and what proportion of the time...? Oh, we never speak uh, a word of uh, English among ourselves. Really? Never, never. We speak in Gaelic and we think in Gaelic and <laughs> we get on with our uh, lives. And the same with with, uh, when, you, when you meet your neighbours and so on? Of course, yes. It, it's all Gaelic. We speak among ourselves. It's the Gaelic of the church. It's the Gaelic of the of the locality, of the isles. School teacher Mary McGuinness also lives on South Uist. Like most native islanders, Gaelic is her mother tongue. She and her husband encourage their three daughters, Jane, Jessica and Helen, to use it also but not always without a little gentle resistance. Is it what you speak at home, Miranda? It is, normally, yes, all the time. Although the children want to speak a lot more English than we would like them to, that, and also than we do ourselves. And we have a battle getting them to speak Gaelic, although their Gaelic is reasonably good. Why is it unreasonably good? If, if, they, if they've had it from birth, why? Because they believe they have this seem to have this belief that English is so much more attractive and so much more easy to speak, and the pool of television and uh, magazines come. The English world seems to be pulling them towards English, and uh, they're not so good at hanging on to that. It hasn't that been going on for a long time? I mean, you must have had the pull of television and radio and pop music and everything when you were... 
Not yeah. not to the same extent. Right. And, and what sort of proportion of people on, on in a place like South US do we find speak Gaelic as, as a native tongue? As a native tongue, um, probably 90% of the people oh, who are really? living there now. Really? Yes, really? Will, be, will be speaking it as a native tongue. And, and what kind of health is it in overall? Over 10 years ago, there was a programme started by the local authority where the children would be taught through the medium of Gaelic. And that has made a big difference to its revival. So we're hoping that its health is going to improve from now on. So the young ones are getting taught to read, write, count, do everything through the language. That's the five-year-olds upwards. That that type of education is only 10 years old. So obviously it's going to have its own problems, but it's certainly a way of addressing the backslide that, that has been over the last 20 years. And do you believe that you can save a language? Well, I think so. We have to think, to be serious about it and realise that it needs us for it to survive and that every single person has their own bit to do. And if we don't do that, if one parent doesn't pass it on to their child, that's a whole line of people that are not going to have it. And I suppose an, an obvious question would be why does it matter I mean why does it matter to you why, what is the importance of you're going to understand each other in English anyway English is the language of of you know Britain certainly the modern world generally why is it important to you to save a, a, a little fringe language like Gaelic because it's the the dearest thing we have that our parents gave us and there is no English in the world that could do for us what our Gaelic songs and our Gaelic heritage of wealth of sayings, poems, songs, music, that could never be replaced by anything in English that I've ever heard. Really? Yes. You find it much more expressive? Oh, absolutely. It's it's just the language of our lives. I mean, it's so much a part of us as breathing is. When you consider the size and strength of the language Gaelic is up against, it's hard to be too optimistic about its long-term future. Estimates of the number of people who speak English as a first language are usually placed in the range of 330 to 350 million, not many at all compared with, say, Mandarin Chinese, which is spoken by at least double that number. However, no other language is spoken as an official language in more countries, 44, and none enjoys a wider geographical spread as a native tongue. 1.6 billion people, roughly a third of the world's population, live in countries where English has official status. And of course, it is used as a second language by more people than any other. I asked Loretto Todd of Leeds University, an expert on world Englishes, whether this was a good thing. It's both a good and a bad thing. It's almost like everything that is good has the potential for bad as well. Now, it's good in the sense that 
there's communication among people where previously there was no communication. It's good in the sense that we can read um, in English about the cultures of other people, we can understand them better. So in that sense, the English language is, if you like, uh, the language, the lingua franca of the world. We can all use it and talk with each other. And hopefully, if you talk, you can avoid some of the problems that previously existed. But the negative side of the English language, I sometimes think of it that English is almost like a linguistic virus in that wonderful as it is, it is having a very detrimental effect on local languages. I mean, as you can probably hear from my accent, I come from Ireland, and the Gaelic language that existed in Ireland has a literature that is at least as old as the literature in English. It had a grammar book in the seventh century. It has a history that uh, one could weep over, as it were. But the English language has been so successful in Ireland that perhaps fewer than 5% of the country of the people in the country use Irish fully and adequately. Now that's desperately sad and I go to places like West Africa and even in 10-15 years you can see a difference that somebody will say oh my mother tongue is Lamso or my mother tongue is become but I don't use it anymore and so you're finding that we're losing a lot of the linguistic wealth in the world. And I honestly think it is a little bit like the loss of the forests. We won't fully appreciate how much culture we have lost until perhaps it's too late. Thanks in large part to its immense geographical spread, English has developed more dialects than any other language group and particularly in its country of birth, users are passionately defensive about them, as here at the centenary gathering of the Yorkshire Dialect Society. As far as I'm concerned, I, well, I'm getting old anyway, so dialect is not going to die in my time, but I hope it won't die next century either, because in my mind there's no doubt at all if you want to really stress something, it's far better dialect. Well, you see, it saves breath as well, though, because do you know that the word something takes 1.95 seconds to say and the word summit only takes 0.98 of a second to say? Yeah. So, therefore, you see, you save your breath, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Economical, yes. We don't waste as bad as it in North England, do we? One man who knows more about dialects than almost any other is Stanley Ellis, a retired professor of linguistics at Leeds University. To help me understand just how dialects evolve, he took me to a lonely windswept ridge called Otley Shevin on the edge of the Yorkshire Dales. Have you got your eyes closed? Shut tight. Right, now step forward, and you only need to do perhaps 20 or so steps at most. I'll make absolutely sure that you don't trip over any stones. <laughs> and as we reach forward, say another, oh, only, only another five or six yards, are you confident? And don't have is, no confidence at no all. No confidence. There is a stone in front <laughs> of you, but it won't ground. hurt you. Now, if you just uh, stand there quietly and open your eyes. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. Now, where we are, looking right down over Wharfdale, there is still on the ridge ahead of us, roughly, 
uh, a boundary between what I would call the North Midland group of dialects and the Northern group of dialects. And it's tremendously important. There's a valley running up there called the Washburn Valley, which comes down into Otley, and the farmers from there would all talk North Midland. You go to the very top of the valley and you go over a few fields and the farmers in the farms over those fields talk completely differently because they go down to a place called Pateley Bridge uh, where there is their market, whereas in the valley, the Washburn Valley, they come down to Otley. And north of this division, they would say Doon and Round and a boat and I was gone in a boat there, whereas south of it, in Otley, where we are looking, they would say Dan and Rand and a Bart and I'm going down there. And the complete contrast owes its difference to a historical division that goes back to uh, what I will call Anglo-Saxon times, but there were Anglian tribes rather than the Saxons who were King Alfred's lot down in Wessex in the south of England. There were the Mercians who were south of Elmit and the Northumbrians, effectively north of the Humber, who were north of Elmit. So it's an absolutely wonderful place to, to stand and you're seeing history, you're seeing language division and you're seeing beautiful scenery as well. It's fabulous. It is, it is just incredibly glorious. People get emotive about language. They think it belongs inside them. I always remember uh, talking to people about their words and they say, but so-and-so is real Yorkshire. And what they mean is our kind of Yorkshire, which may be East Yorkshire or North Yorkshire, which is quite, quite different from the West, West Riding, West, West Yorkshire. I had a colleague at the university who used to say, I used to travel home by bus every night uh, up into the heavy woollen district, which is Dewsbury, Batley, and is to the south of Leeds. And he said that he would stand in the queue for the bus and try and identify where people would get off the bus on the way home. And he said, if they got off at the wrong spot, I knew they'd flitted. <laughs> he meant, I, know, I knew they'd moved house, because their speech told where they will be born in the communities on the way to his home. But what is the future of dialects in Britain? Stanley Ellis takes a positive view. Folks say to me now, ah, populations are on the move, people are uh, changing their living. You look at the ordinary people, not very influential people, the non-Times readers, and there are mountains of folk who still live near their granny and their their mother-in-law looks after the children while they go out to work and there's the close extended family. And and these villages and even the towns of of West Yorkshire and and the Midlands and, and all over the country, you've still got people who are living in tight communities which promote to my mind the tight community speech that's where your dialects come from that there aren't a lot of outsiders forcing their way in and people are not moving away the only trouble is that uh, under the pressures of modern times which are entirely new these dialects i suppose are under threat but what I find is that they're not completely under threat for destruction in England they're changing children today will talk identifiably locally especially in pronunciation especially in vowel and consonant sounds um, but they don't talk like the grandparents but they're still identifiably of that particular town or that part of a town Bristol rather than Bath or whatever uh, and that will develop among the young so where now for English? 
We've seen in these programs how English has been mauled and molded by huge upheavals in its structure. But even now, changes are going on all the time, changes in the way we speak and spell. A hundred years ago, gold was still often pronounced gould. The first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary listed maybe as an archaic expression. Fifty years ago, the Daily Mail ran an article on American expressions that it described as positively incomprehensible to the average Briton. Among the terms it listed were commuter, intern, seafood, and living room. Fifteen years ago, no one had heard of cyberspace or the Internet or Walkmans or Café Latte or any of several thousand other terms that have poured into English and continue to pour in yet. As David Dennison of Manchester University notes, even punctuation is subject to the relentless whim of progress. The apostrophe, for example, appears to be under threat. As knowledge of the apostrophe, its correct use in writing disappears from Britain, I don't know if it's the same in America, um, people are conscious that perhaps they're doing it wrong, perhaps it might be better to use an apostrophe, and it gets thrown in the so-called greengrocer's apostrophe in all sorts of contexts where you don't expect it. You know, Apples 50p a pound with an apostrophe before the S. Or I've even seen a respectable publisher offering their linguistics leaflet and linguistics had apostrophe S. Really? Yep. And that seems to me a death row phenomenon. The, the, the apostrophe is, is more or less useless. It's a very recent invention anyway. It's only about a couple of hundred years old in regular use. It's clearly dying out again. It's conceivable that subtle spell checkers in modern word processors will allow it to survive rather longer than it otherwise would have. But if it weren't for that, I'd say it would probably disappear entirely in a few decades. But in those decades of its dying, it's being used where it shouldn't be, and it's not being used where it should. John Honey, who has written extensively on the need for standards in English usage, believes the innate richness of the language is being eroded. Militate and mitigate should be distinguished. Flaunt and flout should be distinguished. Imply and infer should be distinguished. And refute and rebut should be distinguished. Because they have importantly distinguishable meanings. Decimate has come to mean destroy. It used to mean to cull a proportion of. And I am saying that it is the function of schools... It is the function of editors to try and keep these senses apart, to discourage ignorant uses which serve to degrade the the language. But how will English sound in the future? I talked to Derek Britton of Edinburgh University. Is it possible at all to make any kind of forecasts for where... For where standard English is going in terms of pronunciation? No. You <laughs> cannot, <laughs> cannot predict linguistic change. There are numerous possibilities and it won't necessarily take the same route as it has before. Now, is it possible at all to, to guess how long we would have to leap forward into the future before English, spoken English would begin to sound strange to late 20th century ears? Well, it may be if we don't, as I'm sure we won't, change our spelling system. I don't think, at my guess, you'd find it in hundreds of years, possibly 
all that radically different. I say that because from about the sort of 18th century onwards, when writers begin to insist, well, they insisted earlier, but when it becomes to to have weight, especially with the aspiring middle classes, that words are best pronounced, these are Dr. Johnson's words, Dr. Johnson, that words are best pronounced as they are spelt, then standard English spelling is actually a very formidable obstacle uh, with that dictum then of, of... language conforming uh, to spelling, that's a very formidable obstacle to further change, um, I would have thought. Richard Hogg of Manchester University voices a similar measure of caution in trying to predict the future of something as fickle as English. I think overall it's probably very difficult to do so, but you can probably guess at one or two things that will happen in detail. Uh, For example... There are still a great many people who dislike the use of pronouns such as him and me being used as a subject of a sentence. As in it's me. As in it's me. Or um, John and him are, are going to the pictures. And what's interesting is that that usage started off probably in the late 18th century and became only became widespread at the beginning of the 20th century and is continuing, it seems to be on the increase all the time, so that you can see it just becoming more and more dominant. The great difficulty, however, is in in looking at these kind of changes, is that we are now dealing with a population that is overwhelmingly literate and relies on written English to determine what the standard is when you're speaking even. And that's a phenomenon that didn't exist 250 years ago. That's a new phenomenon with the rise of literacy. And what we can be fairly certain about is written language is very, very conservative compared with spoken language. And the reliance on the written language may inhibit change. So things may not move as quickly as they have done in the past. John Honey, as we have heard, has expressed concerns about the loss of distinction in certain words. I asked him if he thought the language was in terminal decline. One of the things that you will hear from linguists and from lay people all the time, language is in constant flux. It is stupid to try and put up barricades against particular usages which you think are to the degradation of the language. Language is in constant flux. Answer, not true. The English language is changing all the time in tiny ways. As a proportion of the total language, these small points about which the language gurus want people to be alerted and to be watchful that the total number of those is very small as a proportion of the whole language. One of the glories of the English language is its stability over time. We can now read things that were written two, three, four, five hundred years ago. We can attempt to read the language of Shakespeare, maybe with some help, of Jane Austen, maybe with some help, more help than is available to students studying A-level Jane Austen. But 
The fact is, stability is greater than flux. Stability is greater than change in the English language. Many people in Britain and elsewhere fear that the irresistible weight of American culture will lead to what is sometimes called the Coca-Colonization of the world, leading, in effect, to an American takeover of English. I discussed this with David Dennison. Should British speakers of English or speakers of non-American varieties of English be concerned about this? Should they see this as a threat? I don't think so. I mean, power follows money. America is the powerful nation, and foreigners who want to learn English will increasingly want to follow the American pattern for learning English, and it's entirely reasonable that they should do so. I don't think it's a real danger. The contrary tendency to want to mark out your own language as individual and shared by a relatively small group is always there. It's always persistent, so there will always be differences. I don't think we're ever going to get a homogeneous dialect right across the English-speaking world. So to that extent, I'm not worried by the dominance of American language. The dominance of American culture is another thing, and <laughs> we could argue about that. Speaking personally, I would hate to see the day when all of us in the English-speaking world spoke with a uniform vocabulary and a universal accent. I asked Loretta Todd whether she thought this was remotely likely. I don't think that's possible. I really and truly don't think that's possible. You, you only have to move around from one tiny little area of England to the next to realize that although we've been exposed to the same media influences, certainly as far as radio is concerned, the influence has been there for 60, 70 years. Television has been there for, what, 40, 50 years. And people are hearing these features, and yet local pronunciations can remain local forms idioms and so on can remain. There may be one that would be the written standard international medium that we would all use. But I cannot see monolectal monotony, as it were. I see variation, vitality. And one of the things I also believe is that even if we became uh, monolectal, as it were, you'd get poets and playwrights and novelists taking the language and stretching it and modifying it, and new things would come in. This parrot is no more. It's ceased to be. It has expired. I discovered that to most of them, Persia was little more than a vague romantic name. And the slithy toves did gyre and gimble against the say of troubles, and by opposing... Murder noses on red rum. Mum, it poses optimum. Question time. These two pansies over there. What was the growth of post-neoclassical endogenous growth theory and the symbiotic relationship... Can I do you now, sir? Perhaps no other language on earth is more gloriously illogical, more dazzlingly inconsistent, more bewilderingly idiosyncratic than English. But it is also a language of great beauty and potency a language equally at home whether dealing with the rich lyricism of a sonnet or the technological complexities of interstellar spaceflight. English will continue to evolve in ways we can't begin to guess at, and people will continue to argue over the best ways to use it. But as far as I'm concerned, until something better comes along, it'll do for me. (laughs) ¶¶